special this morning. Blessing that was. John chapter number 9. This chapter is mostly narrative as we have been studying through. Last week we looked at the initial uh, first part of this chapter and the healing of the blind man. What an incredible miracle as Jesus has been teaching and preaching as he's been dealing with this group referred to as the Jews, led by religious leaders in opposition to Christ, looking to persecute him, looking literally to murder him. The end of John chapter number 8, Jesus literally walks out of the temple as they picked up stones to kill him, to throw at him. So intense opposition, yet Jesus continues to come with compassion and with boldness, continues to declare the truth. And in John 9, we started last week in looking at the first part of this chapter, and we saw Jesus' compassion. We saw that Jesus loved this blind man, a man born blind in a day and age that had no disabilities act, really had no welfare system, really had no social safety nets. This man was basically reduced to being a beggar, and he had to maybe get some help from his family, and this man had spent his entire life unable to see. I've been reminded just in the last couple days with Kelly having this procedure on her eye, just how valuable our sight is. Some of you, uh, from what I understand, uh, have uh, some some vision issues and uh, maybe even some disabilities there. And then there's always the glasses and the contacts and the annual eye appointments. And then there's Uh, various ways in which we have to protect our eyes with sunglasses. And we understand the value of eyesight. And for a man in this day, in the first century uh, A.D., it was a severely uh, debilitating disability. Uh, I know that on the north side of Indianapolis, there is a a service called Bosma Enterprises, and they have uh, tremendous... uh, technologies and ways in which they assist uh, the visually impaired. It's incredible the technology and even the, the ability for them to even do a procedure like uh, what they did uh, for, for Kelly. I was even watching the Little League World Series and there's an 11-year-old uh, boy who was playing for one of the teams who had lost the, the sight in his right eye. And he was up there to bat and they were talking about how uh, with uh, today's technology and, and the way they could treat that, that, whatever it was that caused that blindness in his right eye, they, there was hope that he would be able to get his, his vision back uh, in that, that right eye. Well, this blind man, he had no hope like that. There was nothing. There were no medical techniques. There was nothing that could offer him any hope for, for being healed of his blindness. And yet Jesus, with compassion, with love, healed this blind man. We read last week of how Jesus uh, took his saliva and he, he, he made this, this, this clay and he, he put it on the, the blind man's eyes. And in verse number 7, he was told to go and wash in the pool of Siloam. And he went his way, therefore, and washed and came seeing. And in Jesus' compassion and his love, he heals this blind man. He, he had him take an extra step. And, and, and we talked about how that is a, a lesson for how faith has to be active. How our faith has to have hiking boots or sometimes even running shoes to get away from temptation. Faith has to have work boots on. Our faith has to show itself real. Our, our faith has to be displayed. And this blind man, he obeyed Christ and he was healed of this blindness. 
We also saw the disciples' curiosity. The disciples' curiosity. Here they asked this question because it was understood that if someone had a disability, had an injury, had an illness, had a sickness, it was thought in that day that it was directly the result of sin. The reason that there was sickness, the reason there was disability, the reason that there was suffering was always directly related to someone's sin. And the disciples asked that question in their curiosity, having accepted from the culture this idea that this man or his parents must have sinned and he was born blind because his parents had committed some sin and done some evil act and this was punishment. Jesus dismissed that in verse 3. Neither hath this man sinned nor his parents, but that the works of God should be made manifest in him. And we talked last week about how God can use our physical suffering, our physical problems for his glory. God made it clear, Christ made it clear that this man was born blind, that God might be made manifest in him, that God would receive the glory. There was a purpose, there was a plan in this man's suffering. We talked last week about how in general there is sickness, there is suffering, there is death because of sin. We know from Romans 5 and verse number 12 that death comes as a result of sin, for that all have sinned. We know Romans 3.23, for all have sinned and come short of the glory of God. There wouldn't be death, there wouldn't be suffering, there wouldn't be sickness if it weren't for sin. But not every illness, not every sickness, not every disease or disability is the direct result of sin. God had a purpose, God had a plan, God has a purpose and a plan in our suffering. God has a purpose and a plan in our struggles. And that's one of the the, the wonderful privileges that we have as believers, that we can trust a God who can overcome sin and death and suffering. We, We trust in a God who has a purpose and a plan. And in this man's blindness, God received the glory. A tremendous miracle was done, and it was a backdrop for a sermon that Jesus would preach and for a lesson and for a gospel opportunity that Jesus would use. And again, as I mentioned last week, it's possible, very possible, that this man would have never been saved had he not been born blind. Think about that. He could have gone into eternity, into the presence of of hell, absent from God, outside of the presence of God, he could have gone into eternity and, and, in a sense, have eyes, have his senses perceive the agonies of hellfire and brimstone for all eternity in never having received physical sight. But in receiving his physical sight, Jesus then brought him to himself, and by verse 38, this man confesses Christ and trusts Christ as his Savior. And it becomes a contrast to the religious leaders who claim to have spiritual sights. They knew the law. They knew the scriptures. They were the ones who supposedly were protecting the law by keeping the doctrines of men, the commandments of men, onto the law of God. They thought themselves as having the the spiritual eyesight, but they were spiritually blind. And they were in danger of going to hell and being separated from God forever. The blind man received physical sight and spiritual sight. 
And he became a contrast and he became a lesson to those religious leaders, to those Jews, to those in opposition to Christ who had spiritual blindness, though they had physical sights. So the disciples' curiosity, Jesus' compassion, we understand that God has a purpose and a plan in suffering. We know that 1 Corinthians 10 and verse number 13, there hath no temptation taken you, but such as is common to man. But God is faithful, who will not suffer you to be tempted above that year able, but will with the temptation provide a way of escape. God is faithful in our suffering, in our times of temptation, in our times of trial, in our times of physical need. And yes, even in spiritual temptation, God is faithful. And it's a reminder, and we have this lesson in, in chapter 9 of, of the book of John, to help us remember that even when we are struggling physically, in our times of greatest need physically, God is able. And we can trust Him, and He has a plan, and He has a purpose, and He can receive the glory as we trust Him. Paul experienced that and wrote that in 2 Corinthians 12 and verse number 9. He had asked God to take away this thorn in the flesh. And God didn't take it away. God said, I have a plan, I have a purpose in your suffering, in this thorn in the flesh. And then he reminded Paul that my strength is made perfect in weakness. It's a reminder that God's strength is made perfect in our weakness. And it's often during physical suffering, physical struggles, that we are reminded of our need to depend upon the Lord. Oftentimes we need those struggles and we need those trials because we need our faith strengthened. We need our sins purged. We need some pruning because we get so self-sufficient. We get so dependent on ourselves and all the things that we can do and all the places that we can go and all the money that can be used to buy whatever it is that we want. And we have all these medicines and we have all these technologies and we have all these resources. And they make us sometimes very self-sufficient, as thankful as we are for the medical technology and for the medicines. And believe me, I'm thankful that there's an eye surgeon who can look at Kelly's eye this afternoon. I'm thankful for that. I'm thankful they could even do the procedure. But ultimately, it's these times of physical need that remind us of how much we need the Lord and how much we need to depend upon Him. And in the lives of these unsaved religious people, they need to quit depending on their good works and quit depending on their self-righteousness. They needed to depend upon the Lord. They need to look to Christ for salvation. So we see Jesus' compassion. We see the disciples' curiosity. And then we saw last week Christ's clarification. Christ's clarification there in verse 4. I must work the works of him that sent me while it is day. The night cometh when no man can work. As long as I am in the world, I am the light of the world. And we see this contrast between day and night that Jesus references day, speaking of the work, the time that Christ would be on this earth to do the works of God, to fulfill the will of the Father, to fulfill God's redemption plan. And then night, speaking of the limit of time that is set for us, that death is certain, that there is only so much time that we have. And as a believer, we need to be faithful. We need to be serving. We need to maximize the time for the Lord that he has given us. And we're going to be held into account for our time, our talents, our treasures, but also for our spiritual growth and how we have developed. We have received the light. He is the light of the world. And we are to be reflectors of that light as salts and lights. Let your light so shine before men that they may see your good works and glorify your Father which is in heaven. Our testimony is important. And our testimony often gives us opportunity to share the gospel. 
to give the gospel to others. And our lives should back up the gospel. Our lives should be full of integrity and of character that backs up the word of God and the truth of the word of God. There's only a period of time that we have here on this earth. As saved individuals, we need to be doing the works of God. We need to be serving him faithfully. There is a place that we can serve. And sometimes we may not be able to serve in one area or another because of different reasons, but there is something that we can be doing, even if it's just prayer, even if we are limited to just praying. I can think of so many people in my life who prayed for me, people who even were shut-ins or physically unable to come to church, physically unable to teach or to do other things, but I know that they were praying for me. Incredible, the testimony of some people who are physically limited. But we have testimonies of people like Johnny Erickson Tata, who was uh, paralyzed, quadriplegic, from the time she was a teenager. Yet she gives incredible testimony and has served with the limited physical ability that she has. She has written books. She has sang praises to the Lord. She has given testimony to the Lord and to his faithfulness in her life. Incredible. And Christ says we have a time that he has given us to serve him. We need to be busy doing what God wants us to do. Number four, we see the neighbor's confusion. The neighbor's confusion. We've seen Jesus' compassion. We've seen the disciples' curiosity. We've seen Christ's clarification. But number four, the neighbor's confusion. That brings us down to verse number eight. The neighbors, therefore, and they which before had seen him that when he was blind, said, Is not this he that sat and begged? Some said, This is he. Others said, He is like him. But he said, I am he. Therefore said they unto him, How were thine eyes open? And he answered and said, A man that is called Jesus made clay and anointed mine eyes and said unto me, Go to the pool of Siloam and wash. And I went and washed and I received sight. Then said they unto him, Where is he? He said, I know not. Verse 13, They brought to the Pharisees him that aforetime was blind. The neighbors were confused. This man, they had only seen him as a, a blind beggar. Now he's walking around. He can see. Can you imagine having been blind all your life in all the things that he was now enjoying? I was out Friday night and beautiful sunset. Josiah and I were snapping pictures. Just a, a little glimpse of God's glory in that sunset Friday night. I know there, there's, there's beautiful sunsets on the beach and over the mountains, but I love Indiana sunset sometimes. They're some of the most beautiful. And we have a nice view sometimes from uh, Emily's bedroom window as we look out across the, the river and across the Purdue campus, and sometimes there's some beautiful sunsets that we can see just from uh, the second story of our house. The, the heavens declare the glory of God, the firmament showeth his handiwork. Can you imagine him seeing a sunset for the first time, seeing a sunrise for the first time, Seeing his mom and dad's face for the first time. Seeing all of the, 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 the things that were going on, the hustle and bustle of life that we take for granted, that those people in the first century took for granted. He was seeing them for the first time. The man must have been excited. He must have been energized. And oh, that we would have that excitement. Oh, that we would have that gratitude. Oh, that we would have that appreciation for the gifts and the blessings that God has given us. Sometimes I think we are the biggest complainers. We're the biggest gripers. I've met people, they aren't happy unless they're complaining about something. I mean, it could be a beautiful, sunshiny day and they're complaining about the sun being in their eyes. It just doesn't seem to matter. 
This man, I can only imagine what he was talking about and, and how he was just so excited about everything that he was seeing. Can you see that? Can you imagine that? Look at that. Look at that. Look at that. Look at that. And then what do they do? The, the, the complainers come along. The neighbors come along. And I'm sure a lot of them meant well. But what do they do? Are you the one that was blind? Yes, I am. Well, who made you? Who, who gave you the ability to see? I, I don't know his name, he says. He told me to do this. He anointed my eyes with the clay. He said, go wash in the pool of Siloam. I did, and I came seeing. And then the neighbors take him to the killjoys, to the Pharisees, to the religious leaders, to the gripers, the complainers, and the critics. Sometimes that's what we do. All the blessings, all the joys, all the wonderful things, but it's not exactly the way I like it, so I'm just going to complain. It's not perfectly... We live in such a a comfort-saturated world. I mean, we we can get in our cars and... We have a camera that shows us when we're backing up. We have dual climate controls. We have heated seats. We have so much, we have more luxury in the seat of our vehicle sometimes than we even do on, on the, the sofa chairs in our house. You know, we have all these comforts. We complain. We will spend 15 minutes, and I've been guilty of it, looking for a remote control. When we used to just walk across the living room floor and press a button, now you can't even press the buttons because there aren't enough buttons on the TV to control the channels. You have to get the remote just to be able to go to the different channels on the TV. And then once we turn it on, there's 150,000 channels. And we think that there's so many choices that make it so wonderful for us and then we complain we have nothing to watch, even though we have 150,000 channels. Here's this man who was born blind. Jesus had healed him. And they take him to the religious leaders. The religious leaders see the man. The neighbors, they probably meant well. They probably even said, well, maybe he needs to follow the Mosaic law and and offer the right sacrifices. Maybe they had good, good intentions. But the neighbors' confusion leads to, number five, the religious leaders' criticism. The religious leaders' criticism. And that brings us down... To verse 10, therefore said they unto him, How were thine eyes opened? He answered and said, A man that is called Jesus made clay and anointed mine eyes and said unto me, Go to the pool of Siloam and wash. And I went and I washed and received sight. Then said they unto him, Where is he? He said, I know not. Verse 13, they brought to the Pharisees him that aforetime was blind. It was the Sabbath day when Jesus made the clay and opened his eyes. Verse 15, Then again the Pharisees also asked him how he had received his sight. He said to them, He put clay upon mine eyes, and I washed and do see. Therefore said some of the Pharisees, This man is not of God, because he keepeth not the Sabbath day. Others said, How can a man that is a sinner do such miracles? And there was a division among them. The religious leaders start their criticism. He did this on the Sabbath day. No compassion, no care for the fact that this man was healed of a disease that was incurable, of a, of a blindness, excuse me. We don't know if it was a disease, but of a disability that was incurable. No concern, no compassion, no nothing of any kind of empathy or sympathy. Just cold, calloused criticism and hatred for Christ. And there became a division I don't know, Joseph of Arimathea, Nicodemus were involved, I don't know, but there was this division. Because one group said, 
there's no way this man could have been healed unless Jesus was of God, as he has been declaring all along, as he has been proving all along. Then there was this other group. They were saying, no way. We cannot give any credence to the thought that Jesus is of God. And as a matter of fact, he can't be of God because he violated the Sabbath. Now think about this. Their man-made traditions, their strict religious code of conduct, their pride was far more important to them than the act of kindness that Christ had shown. Was far more important than any of God's laws. It was all about their laws. It was all about keeping the commandments of men that they had heaped upon the law. This was about their pride. This was about their self-righteousness. We've dealt with this. Christ was exposing their hypocrisy. Christ was exposing their pride. Christ was exposing their sinfulness. Christ has already spent time dealing with this selfish, self-centered, works righteousness of these religious leaders. And once again, they showed their callousness, criticizing Christ, even saying that he cannot be of God because he violated our man-made rule. I mean, this is a certain level of unbelief that is particularly devastating, particularly discouraging, particularly dangerous. And I I don't want to come across the wrong way this morning. I want to talk about a little bit about unbelief. And and, and, and I want to say this with all love and compassion, and I want to say this as a a pastor who cares for the souls of, of, of lost men and women. Because the, the unbelievers are, are not our enemy. As believers, we, we can get caught up in that. The, the unsaved are not our enemy. Yes, they oppose. Yes, there's a, a world and the flesh and the devil that is behind the, the system. And they are controlled by their flesh. But I, I want us, as we identify unbelief, I want us to do so with love and compassion for those souls that need Christ. There are some unbelievers that are curious unbelievers. They're curious unbelievers. They have a respect for morals, for biblical ethics, and for the wisdom of the Bible. They may even profess salvation, but they have not come to Christ in true repentance. I mentioned a man last week, conservative commentator, conservative podcaster. He has all kinds of wisdom. He's an intelligent man. He has more brains in his little finger than I do in my whole body. He can intellectually run circles around me especially and lots of even theologians but the man's unsaved he has not submitted himself to Jesus Christ he has not repented of his sin he can explain certain things about morality and ethics and even the Bible but he's unsaved he's not confessed his sin there's no testimony of him confessing his sin and turning to faith in Christ there's curious unbelievers who have a morality, they, 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 they are, they are uh, blessed with common grace. They, they can see beauty and they can see goodness and they can see that morality and, and rights can, can provide certain benefits to life. They, 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 they can understand in a common sense, uh, a basic understanding of right and wrong and morality. 
And they can even promote in a conservative political way certain good values and family values and traditional values. But that's not enough. That doesn't save anybody. And, and I say this with, with, with all due respect and without trying to be offensive. But our goal as believers is to not win people over to a conservative political position. That's well and good. Believe me. I want traditional values. I want family values. I want conservative political positions. But that's not our ultimate goal as believers, to persuade someone to a conservative voting political block. Our ultimate goal as believers is to win people to Jesus Christ, to point them to Christ who will expose their sin and save their souls from an eternal hell. He offers forgiveness from their sin. That conservative, traditional family value is a good thing and it's profitable, but it doesn't save. Only Christ saves. Only the gospel saves. The gospel is the power of God into salvation. And believe me, I love, I'm a news junkie and I'm a little bit of a political guy. I enjoy podcasts and I listen to a lot of news and listen to a lot of political podcasts and a lot of sermons and a lot of, uh, of, of Bible teaching and preaching as much as I can get when I'm driving down the road or I'm mowing the yard. I mean, I'm, I'm listening to stuff. And I've even affected some of my kids a little bit. And they're already following some of the same people I follow. And those, those, are, those are good things to a certain... But I have to remember that even though I listen to these conservative podcasts and these conservative politics, and as much as I want good conservative people voted into office... That's not going to change America. That's not going to change the world for Christ. It's the gospel of Jesus Christ. It's the power of God into salvation that's going to change hearts, that's going to bring revival, that's going to bring forgiveness, that's going to meet man's greatest need. And here's Christ reaching the unsaved. Some of them that are in the group we know have gotten saved. In John 7 and John 8, there have been groups of believers. There's the curious unbeliever. There's also the casual unbeliever. The casual unbeliever. He sees biblical, he or she sees biblical teaching as one of many good ideas out there. There's nothing too special about it. It's definitely not something to be overly committed to or, or wrapped up in. Oftentimes, a casual unbeliever has a hobby or, or other general interest that one is very committed to and very wrapped up in, but not the Bible. Uh, not, not, not religion, not, not, not wanting to be too carried away with religion. They have a casual unbelief. They don't want God to have too much influence in their life. They, they may have time for God. They know where to go when life gets tough, when bad things happen. They know who to call when there's a death in the family and they need somebody to provide the funeral. They know, where, they know who to call, where to go when somebody needs to get married. And they, they don't want a secular wedding. They want a religious wedding. But they don't want to be overly committed to religion, to God, and to that Bible stuff. But they know who to call to ask for someone to perform the, the ceremony. They know who to call when someone's in the hospital and they need somebody to go and to pray with them. And, and I've met many of these people. I've been called by them many a time. Pastor Floyd, Pastor Brent, can you go? Can you go visit so-and-so in the hospital? They have had nothing to do with religion. They've really had nothing to do with God. They've not been overly committed to anything religious or, or, or really committed themselves to the Bible. But they, they know me. They know our pastoral staff. They know uh, I'm a Christian. Or in your case, you may have had a similar experience. And, and, and you go and you visit and you pray. But that person who is their loved one, who wants them to 
get religion or, or to get some help or to have somebody pray over them, that person, they haven't lived for God. They haven't sold themselves out to the Lord. They haven't even confessed Christ and repented of their sin. But they know who to call to, to maybe get some spiritual counsel, some spiritual help. There's a lot of the casual unbelievers out there, a lot of the curious unbelievers out there. But there's also cold unbelievers. They are in another level of stubbornness and resistance to the Bible. Uh, he or she see, seems to see the Bible and religion as a waste of one's time and energy. Why spend so much time and effort in morality and religion? Live and let live. Don't you know all the problems that religion has caused in society? I don't want to get caught up in all that. Besides, to go to church would be to hang out with a bunch of you hypocrites. You know, that's the kind of mentality often these cold unbelievers have. Always making excuses and, and just kind of live and let live and it'll, it'll all work itself out in the end. You live your life, I'll live my life. Yeah, I may have some sin and some vices, but they're really not that big of a deal. They're not that bad. And sometimes a cold unbeliever even knows that there's a particular vice, particular addiction, a particular habit that is very, very damaging. But they will blame others. They'll blame the economy. They'll blame politics. They'll blame the system. They'll even blame organized religion for their problems. And they refuse to accept Christ. They refuse to confess their sin and repent. They're cold to the truth. They want to live their life their way. They really don't have time for Christ, for God, for Christianity, for the truth. But they know that there's something out there that they need. But they don't, don't want to submit to it. And then we get to what is the majority of this antagonistic group. And I'm going to describe them as the critical, the critical unbeliever. This is a dangerous place to be. This can be a person who's religious or they can be non-religious. They can be educated or uneducated. They have a particular disdain for the truth because it directly opposes their power. It directly opposes their control. It affects what they see as the determining factor for the world and how the world should operate. Many times the critical unbeliever is in places of politics and places of power and places of influence and places of authority. And they have a disdain for God and for truth and for righteousness because it gets in the way of their pride and their power and their control and their ability to dominate and determine. And again, I give those general categories, not to be unloving or uncompassionate but to just simply help us identify people are in stages of unbelief. And we have an opportunity to share the gospel, to give the truth. Jesus is dealing with all of these different groups of unbelievers. The one that's the most dominant and the one that's the harshest is this critical group of unbelievers who are literally now at the point where they're willing at the moment notice, at the right time and place, to pick up a stone and to murder the Messiah, the Savior, who was preaching to them the truth, who was giving them the gospel, who was saying, come to me, I am God, I am the Messiah. I have the truth. He is reaching them. And he has produced some cracks in their system already. Because now there's this division among the Pharisees. Is he of God? If he is, why are we not believing him? 
Who could do a miracle like this? Who could heal a blind man? Who could have, who, who, who could have healed the lame man? Who could be preaching with this authority? Who could have fed the 5,000? No one could have done that except God. Christ must be God. But then there's that group saying, no, we can't go there. He violated the Sabbath. In their arrogance, in their arrogance, they held their man-made commandments that they had heaped upon the law of God. They held those up in such high esteem that they were saying, Their man-made commandments were on level with God and his authority. That's a sad place to be. That in my self-righteousness, in my pride, I can lift myself up to the place where I am on the same plane with God and have his authority. And we're going to run out of time this morning, but I I want to be very careful here. God has given me the privilege and the calling to preach the gospel, to preach the word of God. It is sometimes all-consuming as I prepare for the, 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 the week, for the sermons. It sometimes, it consumes me. I can't even sleep sometimes on Saturday nights because, and I wake up early because I'm so excited about preaching the word and it's such a burden. I don't say that in any way, shape, or form to brag on me. Because I'm a sinner saved by grace. But I have a calling from God, and it is like a fire in my bones sometimes. But that hasn't put me in the place of God. I am not worthy to stand behind this pulpit and preach the truth. I am an unworthy servant. And for me to ever come behind this pulpit and to think that I am in the place of God, I am simply His messenger. I have been called of God. I am his messenger and I have to get out of the way. I want to declare his truth in such a way that I am not in the way. That God's word is very clear and you can see what God says and what God means and what this passage is saying that God is teaching us. And I want to be very careful. And it's sad we have celebrity pastors and celebrity preachers who elevate themselves to a place where they're almost in godlike status. And for you to not give in your abundance to the preacher shows your lack of faith and you are in sin. Because if you were really living in faith and you were living in, really living in obedience, I would be driving a much nicer car and I'd have my own plane over at the Purdue airport and somebody else would be my chauffeur and I wouldn't be wearing a Joseph A. Bank suit. If you were really living in faith and you were really being in obedience, that's a dangerous place. Shame on me if I ever think that way. If I ever take the calling of God and elevate it to a place where I am in godlike status. And that's where these religious leaders were. They were now with no compassion for a work of God saying that for Christ to heal on the Sabbath violated their man-made law. And there's no way that God would violate their man-made law because they are on God's authority. That's dangerous. That is a pride that brings a particularly devastating judgment 
May God spare us from ever having that kind of attitude, that kind of pride. Here are these unbelievers. There's now this division, and it's a blind man that rebukes them. A blind man rebukes them. We don't have time. We're out of time this morning. We'll have to come back, Lord willing, next week and finish this up and move on into to chapter 10. But the blind man speaks to these religious leaders. They're complaining. They get down to verse uh, number uh, 20, and his parents are even brought in. Can you verify that this man was born blind? The parents, afraid of being kicked out of the synagogue, verse 23, they say, he is of age, ask him. We read this in our scripture reading earlier. Verse 25, whether he be a sinner or no, I know not. One thing I know, that whereas I was blind, now I see. And then we get down to verse 38. Let's actually pick up at verse 35, and then we'll have to bring this to a close. Jesus heard that they had cast him out, and when he had found him, he said unto him, Dost thou believe on the Son of God? Jesus confronts the man. Jesus, in a conversation with him, he's concerned for his eternal soul. Dost thou believe on the Son of God? He answered and said, Who is he, Lord, that I might believe on him? And Jesus said unto him, Thou hast both seen him, and it is he that talketh with thee. And he said, Lord, I believe. And he worshipped him. The blind man rebuked the religious leaders. The blind, the blind man confessed Christ and believed. And he got saved. He got physical sight, and he got spiritual sight. And may we live... May we live in the light of God's word, in the light of God's glory, remaining faithful to the truth and have humble hearts, have tender hearts and not be elevated in our pride and reject the truth of God's word. God loves and God cares and God sent his son Jesus Christ to die on the cross for our sins. And if we're here today and we're saved, we have the privilege to live in the light of that glory each and every day. To be the lights, the little lights, the reflective light of God's glory that has shined on our hearts and saved us. But if you're here this morning and you're unsaved, you need to turn to the lights. You need to be like this blind man and say, once I was blind, but now I see but I only gain that spiritual sight through Jesus Christ by turning to him like the blind man did and confessing, I believe, and worshiping him. Let's pray. Lord, we thank you for your word. Lord, these truths are overwhelming. This event is so illustrative of the love and the compassion of you for us. Lord, maybe we physically can see, but we're spiritually blinded by our own sin. And Lord, only by your grace through faith can we be saved. Lord, if there's someone here who does not know you as their Savior, may today be the day that they gain spiritual sight by looking to you for salvation. Lord, I pray as believers that we will live in the light of your word, that we will not have cold and calloused hearts, that we will not have a complacent Spirit, but Lord, that we will have a spirit of gratitude, a spirit, Lord, of service, of loving you and serving you more and serving you better in the time that you've given us. 
Lord, I pray that you will bless in the closing of our service and in the business meeting to follow now. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. If you'll stand to your feet and turn.